going along doing their own thing. But I'm talking about good churches. Good churches with good people tell the man of God what to preach, how to preach it, what he's to do, what he can do, what he can't do, and he's governed by a board or he's governed by a group of men or something of that nature. As long as the hands of the man of God is tied, then he can never speak fully with the authority that God has invested in him. This is one reason that America is not walking in the power of God because we have tied the hands of the men of God to speak what God is saying to him personally. When a true man of God steps into the pulpit and the true man of God says, thus says the Lord, then what is coming out of his mouth is not coming from a board, it's not coming from a denomination, it's coming from heaven itself. He speaks with the authority and the power of God. When a true man of God speaks, he releases something, a truth in the atmosphere, and when that truth is adhered to, lives will change. When a true man of God releases that into the atmosphere, the words that he speaks are truth whether or not the people accept it and or believe it. He can speak a word from heaven, and that word have all of the authority of heaven and backing it up. But if the people in the pew are still looking at the man that they hired as someone that they can choose to uh, listen to or not, he is somebody with an opinion. He is somebody with that's what he says, that's what he thinks. And as long as the church still looks as at the man of God as their hireling, as their pastor, as the man that they pay to fill the pulpit, to give them information on a weekly basis, the church is never, ever, ever going to walk in the design, glory, and power that they have been created and destined to walk in. What is God going to do? God will do one or two things. God will either remove that man of God and he will place him in a position where his words will be adhered to and the people will respond as though it was God himself speaking. You see, this don't set well in America because America has been raised with this democratic idea. I'm not talking about a political party here. I'm talking about a way of life, that we have a democracy. And we really don't even have a democracy. We were founded as a republic, which is different from a democracy. Yet and still, we, we vote and we tend to vote with our voices or we vote with our money. Amen. And if we don't like what is coming across the pulpit, often people will vote with their money or they'll vote with their feet or they'll vote with their voice and they'll say, you can't do that. Let's vote him out. We'll vote somebody else in who will tell us what we want to hear and will do what we tell him to do rather than what he tells us to do. God is changing that. It isn't, it's no different anywhere else in the world. Just as God cannot be voted out of a his own house, neither can people truly vote out the man of God that God has placed there in that house to be his spokesperson. So that just messes all these denominational ideas of how a church is supposed to operate up. Well, we're a democracy, we're supposed to have a vote on that. It never made any sense to me that if we're supposed to vote on everything, then what do we need a man of God for? What do we need a prophet for? What do we need an apostle for if we're going to vote on what he says in the first place? It, if he's speaking for holy God, then what we are saying is, I'm going to vote on whether or not I believe God said that, or I'm going to vote whether or not I'm going to obey God. You know, there's twice in the Bible that I find that where they took a vote. 
They voted to go back to Egypt. And they voted to crucify Jesus. Neither one of those sets a very good precedent. Now, what, what is the point I'm making? The point I'm making is this, and I haven't even got into this yet. The point I'm making is that when the church comes to the, to the reality that when God places somebody in their pulpit to speak for them, and I understand, listen, I, I, I'm not negating the fact that there are hirelings, and I'm, neither am I negate, negating the fact that there are those who stand in a pulpit uh, not truly called to the office that they say they're called to, as well as they may not be living a purity type of lifestyle that would authorize them to speak on heaven's behalf. But I'm going to tell you this, even when they're not, if God has called them, God's word still stands true if God is speaking through that vessel. You say, I don't buy that. Well, what do you do with Balaam's donkey? He was neither called, he was neither appointed, he was neither anointed, but he spoke the truth. In the New Testament, when the high priest, this was, this, you'll find this in John, it's either chapter, I think it's chapter 11, after the resurrection of Lazarus, they, they convene a meeting and he speaks, not of his own accord, but he speaks through the Holy Spirit, because John recorded it as so, and he said, it is needful for one man to die for the nation. And he spoke that as a prophecy that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And he was out to kill him. He was looking to kill him. But the Spirit of God came on him, and he spoke. When Saul, King Saul, when he was looking for David, and he heard that David and Samuel where I believe it was the place called Nob in OB where they were at or something like that. And when, or it might have been Ramoth, I'm not sure. But anyway, when they went to that area, he sent people ahead of him and every person that walked into the, that area where Samuel, the prophet was, a man anointed of God who none of his words fell to the ground, which meant that if he said it, it was so. How about that? And when they walked under that dome or that arena of anointing that was in that area, even Saul himself fell down on the ground and began to prophesy. Why? Because there was a prophet in the house. There was a prophet in the city who heard from God. There was a prophet in the city who none of his words would fall to the ground. He carried an influence he carried affluence, he carried an anointing, and that anointing that he carried was contagious. God is resurrecting men and women of God to fill the pulpits in this nation once again because he is going to have the last word in this nation. The last word is not going to come from Washington, it's going to come from heaven. It's not going to come from our state houses. It's not going to come from our legislatures. It's not going to come from the laws that are enforced over this land. It's going to come from Holy God. And how do you think Holy God is going to speak? He is going to speak through His servants. Now, all of that is just intro, and I didn't even know that was even coming. But God wants to say this. And so what I'm saying tonight is that God is releasing in this house tonight an authority. He is releasing a power and anointing 
for you to possess and walk in and operate in. He's releasing in you to be who you were called to be and no longer be pew warmers or I will call the pastor or we'll set up an appointment with someone else. You are the ones who have been called. You are the ones who have been appointed. You are the ones who have been anointed and it's time for you to do the work. Amen. You say, why is that? It's that way. If God releases anointing, I said this last week, when God releases an anointing and a revelation, the revelation has to come to the individual. It does not come to the church as a whole. It has to be individually grasped. It has to be individually partaken of. You see, if only in your mind you agree with there's going to be a great revival, if only in your mind you agree with God is raising up a great end-time army, but you never consider yourself accountable and responsible, that army will never arise. Somehow the enemy has duped us in thinking that some mysterious ethereal army is just going to rise up out of the sand somewhere and it's going to be called the church. But we're not going to be a part. We're going to see it coming. You are the army. And the revelation has to come to you. So just as last week we looked at some of the keys that God is releasing revelation for authority, He is, he is releasing revelation for us to walk in the realms of the glory. That wasn't notes, that was just the, what I had from last week. Revelation, uh, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Men can preach messages. Listen, men can preach messages. Men can bring sermons. But it is Jesus who gives revelation. While you're turning there, I'm going to say it one more time because I want you to get it. Men may preach messages. Men may bring sermons to the people. But it is God who gives the revelation. A message is what... The Lord has given the man of God to bring forth. But it is the power of the Holy Spirit that takes that message and gives you the personal revelation of what the man of God is saying. Because God wants this to be individual. Is this good or what? In Galatians chapter 1, and we, we talked a lot about revelation last week, and I just want to hammer on this because every, every week it, it begins with revelation. In verse number 11, Paul says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from that man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Man, that's powerful. That is powerful. I did not get my message from a man. I did not get my message from a school. I did not get my message from, the, from a denomination. I did not get my message from a CD. I did not get my message from a book. My, my revelation came from Jesus Christ. And He is releasing a revelation today. Now, I will say this. When the Holy Spirit quickens a word in your spirit, then you are receiving the revelation. And though you may be reading a book, but not looking for a sermon, though you may be listening to a message, but not looking for a message, the Holy Spirit will quicken that in your spirit and it will become a part of you and it becomes your revelation. And you take 
your revelation that was somebody else's revelation and now it has been revealed to you and you utter it forth as a revelation direct from heaven. You see? Because heaven is the one giving the revelation to the man of God. So it's not his revelation. It comes from heaven anyway. And when you hear it, you're hearing the quickening in your spirit. Therefore, it becomes your revelation from heaven. And you can go out and share it and preach it and everything else. You say, I got a revelation, though you heard it from somebody else. See, this God's just so cool. I just think that's awesome. So he says, I did not get this anywhere but from heaven itself. I got this from nobody but just Jesus. So revelation, revel, oh, I got the wrong thing out here, I think. Yeah, revelation is what we have to have first and foremost before we can move into something else, into another arena. Okay. With that said, there is a revelation of the glory of God that the God wants to release in us and release through us. We've heard these messages before. We've heard messages on the glory. I mentioned a little bit about it at the end last week. But there, there's more to it than, than just the message. It is taking the word. It is getting it in our spirit. It is getting down into the very depths of who, who we are and where we live. It becomes a part of the very fiber of your being. You, you think on it. You, you dwell on it. You eat it. You sleep it. See, there's a verse in the book of Job where he talks about that in the middle of the night that God will speak to you. He will give you a revelation in the middle of the night. Amen? Look it up. I ain't going to tell you where it's at because right off the bat I don't remember, but it's in the book of Job. He, he speaks about a revelation. Well, it, look, if God was giving a revelation, would you not want to know it and remember it? Well, you see, uh, it, it only as a, a, a you know, here, here's the thing about men who occupy pulpits, different from a man of God. Men who occupy pulpits and need the job and protect themselves so that they look good and impress themselves in front of the people, they kind of keep everything to themselves and they'll just give you the high points. And you go, oh, that was good, that was good. But, you know, the true job of a man of God is to impart to you so that you know how to do the same thing. Amen? Because Ephesians chapter 4 says that these five ministry gifts are given until the body itself reaches to the full maturity and the stature of Christ, of the anointing in Him. So if we're doing our job, then we're telling you how to do what we do. It's, it's telling you, not that they're secrets, but, you know, things that you just discover on your own after a period of time. God speaks to you every night. God gives you a revelation every night. And you go, well, God doesn't do it. give that to me. No, you just don't remember it. He does. I've heard people say, I don't drink. Everybody drinks. Everybody dreams. Well, how do you know everybody dreams? Because there's something called REM sleep, REM sleep. And when you're in that mode of sleep, that is when your body is replenishing itself. It is when you're truly getting your rest. But it's equally so in that period of time when God is speaking to you and you're having dreams and you're, you have rapid eye movement, hence REM, and you're dreaming. Now listen, not every dream's from God. Some dreams are from hell. Some dreams are from pizza. Some dreams are just from your flesh. Things you're going through. You're worried about this or that and you dream about it. 
but God still speaks through all of that. How do you know? God, listen, here's a, here, I'm going to give you a, it's not a secret. It's just something you ought to know. If God was speaking to you every night, would you not want to know it? Okay, well, the problem with all of us is this, myself included. The only dream I usually remember is the one I wake up with. Right? If I wake up in the morning, and, and, and that's the one that I remember, and if you roll over, you forget it. But God is speaking to you all night long. Here's just a quickie. This is a freebie. Get you a pen and piece of paper. Lay it beside the bed. Are you listening? A pe- lay it beside the bed. God can wake you up in the middle of the night. When he wakes you up in the middle of the night with one of those dreams, instead of you saying, I'll remember this in the morning, and you never do, and you wake up in the morning and say, how in the world could I forget that? Just write you down some key notes. I mean, you don't have to get fully away, but just key words, key things that will trigger what God is speaking. If it's a God dream, and you'll know a God dream. So God is speaking. What we're after is revelation from God. How does God speak to me? And how does God speak about the revelation of the glory? Okay, this is what I want to talk about. In Haggai 2.9, we all know this verse. But I'm speaking about revelation for the end time. I'm not preaching a message about glory. I'm preaching a revelation about the church and about the bride of Christ. In Haggai 2.9, he says that the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. Glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. He's not talking about buildings. He's not talking about things that have been made with hands. He is talking about the temple on the inside of us. For we are now God's temple. Amen? We host God. And he's referring to the fact that there is a a coming glory, a coming glory that will be greater than any glory that has been on the face of the earth today. All of the culmination from the day of Pentecost up until this day, added all together, multiplied ten times over, is still not compared to the glory that He is going to release in this end time. And this glory is going to be released in you, the individual. Because you are the individual that makes up the part of the body, a part of the army, a part of the bride. Each joint supplies... If one person fails to adhere to the word of the Lord and say, that's for somebody else, that's not for me, then you will be left out and we will have a weak link in the chain. Okay. He says, the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. The glory, the glory, the glory. Hallelujah. Now here's here's something else that's interesting. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, in the Old Testament, he says, I will not give my glory to another. Now, isn't that strange? He says, I'm not going to give my glory to another. But in the new, and then in another place, he prophesies that the glory of the latter house is going to be greater than the former. But I'm not sharing my glory. What is the difference? You see, Through the blood of Christ and because you have become a new creation and the old things have passed away, you are not another. You are a part of Him now. 
let me let me hit you with some verses here. I mean, this is just this is just really, 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 really good stuff. There's a couple of things. Let me, let, let's see where is it at. One of them is in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, see, you're not a you, you are you are no longer another. He says. I'll begin with verse number 20 in John 17. This is truly the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now listen to this, verse 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. He's giving you and I the glory of God so we will be one with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He said, we are one. I'm going to make them one with us. Therefore, because you're one, you can share in His glory. And you may say, well, that sounds like a lot of fun, sharing in His glory. Well, listen, just as there was a price to pay for Jesus, often the glory cost us as well. Yep. It's just like, oh, just hand that over. That sounds really good. I like that. He gives us the glory. Just as it was, let me read that verse here. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. The glory which you gave me, I have given them. The glory you gave me, I've given them that they may be one just as we are one. No wonder that the, the, the glory of the latter house is going to be greater. Now watch this. See, this is a revelation. If we only look at this as words on the page, we'll, we'll write it off to some future you know, event, some future time. See, this is the easy way for those who don't want to be account, accountable for the word of God. This is what they do. Oh, we, that's, that's for the millennium. This is after the church is gone. And what does that do? It takes all responsibility away from you, as well as accountability. It's just so much easier to say, well, that's not for us. That's for some future time. No, it's for us, and it's for now. And two weeks from now, I'll prove it to you. So you want to be here for that. But this is what the Lord is doing. He is setting up a church. He is setting up those who are believers. See, that's why I believe there's a distinction between the bride and the church. This is just me talking. I believe there's a distinction between the bride of Christ and the church. Why? Because the bride is looking for him to come. The bride is ready. There are there was ten virgins. They were all virgins. They were all clean. We could say they were all saved. But five of them had oil in their laps and even some reserve. Five of them we could say with spirit filled because the oil represents the Holy Spirit. Five of them were not. They missed it. You see what I'm saying? Think about it. They missed it. The ones who were ready, the ones who were believing, the ones who were full of oil, they were ready when the bridegroom came. The others who had no oil, who are the ones who have no oil? This is for some future event. This is not for now. You just think about it. You just Solomon's like, you just think about it. Why would God why would God want to eat even remotely? Why would he want to entrust us with the glory? I mean it I'm, why I'm, 
Think about you. I think about me. Why would, why would God want to entrust me with the glory? It's like, are you sure? Have you checked out my resume lately? <laughs> okay. Why does he want to do this? He wants to do this because this was the original intent of creation. And he's going to come and restore all things. Psalm 8, verse 4 and 5, he says, What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have crowned him with glory. Adam was clothed in glory. That's why he was not naked. Or in the deep south, he wasn't naked. He was clothed in glory. And it was only to the fall that he recognized his condition. And he recognized his condition because he had lost the glory. Amen? But when Jesus came, he redeemed us so that we again could be clothed in the glory. This is why the end time church, the end time army is going to be so marvelous, so powerful. I mean, it's going to be off the charts because we're going to be clothed in the glory of God. Hallelujah. That excites me. So it was original intent. He gave us the glory. All right, now let me look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 10. I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures and then I'm going to do a long wrap up. But just kind of letting you know that I am basically almost through with tonight. Hebrews chapter 2 verse number 10. I'm going to read it to you first out of the New King James and then I'm going to read, read it to you in, um, out of the Passion Translation. He says, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through what? Perfect through suffering. He, made, he, went, he was made perfect through sufferings. Now, you know, I, I'm just crazy about the Passion Translation. I mean, this, this is, I've never been more excited about a translation in my life. Because it, it speaks, it, it speaks with passion. It speaks with the reality of how we would hear something. There's truly, there, because it was written in a, a different language, there really is no literal translation. You'd have to speak that language for it to be a literal translation. But what it does, it takes the understanding, and much of this comes from the Aramaic, which was a very colorful language. It was a language of passion, and it puts the passion back in the wording, rather than it just being cold, stiff, and dry words. You see, it is the Spirit who gives life. And if you're only looking for a particular translation and say that's the Word of God, then you're missing it because it's not any translation. It's not any man-made translation that has the life in it. It is the Spirit of God who breathes the life in it. 
It is the Spirit of God who brings the revelation to it, regardless of what translation it is. I'm going to throw out one more thing, just because I feel like I'm an instigator tonight. Uh, I've often wondered that why certain people say that a certain translation is the only translation and there is no other translation but that translation, and it happens to be an English translation. What are people in France supposed to do? What are people in, in Russia supposed to do? What are people in Africa, Asia? What are they supposed to do? They don't, they don't read English. So all their Bibles don't count. It's just, it's just something this redneck ponders. Okay, listen to this. The verse I just read you, I'm going to read it again. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now with a little passion. It is the beauty of God who created all things for his glory to make the pioneer of our salvation perfect through his sufferings. For this is how he brings his many sons and daughters to share in his glory. Oh man, you get the picture now. He went through the suffering so he could share the glory with you and I. It changes everything. It becomes a reality. It hits my heart. The reality, he did this for me. He went through what he went through so he could give me his glory that he loved me so much, that he loved me so much he would want to share his glory with me? Man. That's passion. Romans 8, 18 is a follow-up. And this is the verse in two, in two weeks that we'll, we'll be camping on. Romans chapter 8. There's a lot said about the glory here. But this is what he says in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Look at that. Same thing. Same thing. But who's suffering now? We are enduring. We are going through hardship. We are going through trials. Why? Because it is the testing of your faith that which produces the purity of your faith. Can I say, is there anybody in here not suffering something? Whether it be finances, health issues, work issues, children issues, family issues. I've got more to say about that in my long closing. It's not really that long for you, really. Listen to the passion. I, I, I love this. Again, Romans 8, 18. I am convinced that any suffering we endure is nothing compared to the magnitude of glory that will be unveiled within us. The entire universe waits with excitement, yearning to see the unveiling of God's glorious Sons and daughters. Creation waiting, anticipating, expecting for these glorious sons and daughters to come forth. 
well, praise God, when we get to the millennial, then we'll see all that. No! How do you correct something like that? You hold your hand out about this far, make a ball up a fist, and you bring it ever-increasing velocity toward your head. Knock some sense in your head. That was just a joke. I'm not really There is a glory coming. Now, you've heard this. You've heard this. You've heard this. You've heard this. But this is where we are. I want to read one more verse, and I'm going to tell you a story. This is in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 10, because this has to do with the army. And of all places to find this verse, that it would be in the Song of Solomon, something about love. Do you know when they were, they almost didn't put the Song of Solomon in the Bible because it was just way too racy. And this is a very passionate book, even in KJV. Amen? I hadn't seen it in the Passion Translation. To be honest, I don't know that I want to. Okay. Song of Solomon 6.10. It says, Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Who is she? Who is this woman? Who is this woman that arises as the morning? She is as clear, as bright as the sun. Who is this woman? It's an army that is coming. Who is this person? While he was speaking here prophetically about an end time, this was veiled to those of that time when they read it, but it's revealed to us today that he is coming for an army. And what does an army do? An army is to fight. An army is prepared for the day of battle. And the day of battle is upon us. The day of battle is here. As darkness is arising, this is when the time that the church rises up, the true church, the bride of Christ. This, this is the time when those who are filled with glory come into their position, they come into their place. How do they come into their place? You see, the enemy has a plan, and his plan is to distract the army, detract the army. He is to get us into a place and a, a position individually where we will not embrace the glory of the Lord. Why? Because what did I say in the beginning? Because the revelation has to come to the individual. The revelation of who you are. The revelation of your authority. The revelation that you're going to walk in the glory. It has to come to the individual. So where does Satan take his aim? At the individual. But that's where he messed up. Because he didn't count on something. In the book of 1 Kings, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to tell you a story. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 20, there is a king of Syria by the name of Ben-Hadad. And he wants to pick a fat fight with Ahab, king of Israel. Now Ahab, as you remember, is married to Jezebel. He's not the most righteous king in the world. He's not the greatest king of the world. He has a lot of flaws. He has a mixed religion. His wife brought in 
the Baals, the Asherahs. You recall that just a couple of chapters earlier, there's a battle on Mount Carmel with Elijah. And there's a, a few hundred of the prophets of Baal and Asherah that are slain, beheaded. Remember that? So he's not, he's not the best leader of this nation. Think about it. He's not the best leader of this nation. He has been put in a position he's really led this nation astray. He's led this nation away from the, from the God of their fathers. He led this nation away allowing other gods to come in. He gave credence and pres, you know, precedence to other gods by allowing them to worship freely, openly, having their own sanctuaries. We just welcome all of the Baal worshipers. We welcome, welcome all of the Asherah worshipers. Y'all come on in. It's perfectly legal. Until they came to the point where the Lord God of Israel, the God of the nation, was no longer even considered the one God. For now there were many gods. Sound familiar? But the, the, the good news is that God will fight for the nation that is His. And when the messengers came, and they came to Ahab, and this was the messengers, the, the, the word that had come from Ben-Hadad of Syria. He said, your gold is mine, your wives are mine, all your stuff is mine. Referring to the, the properties of the nation. And, and, and Ahab just responded, it is as you say. It's that, absolutely. We're going to be politically correct. It is as you say. My gold's your gold, my silver's your silver. My wives are your wives. It's getting interesting already, isn't it? And so on the next day, the, the messenger returned and told Ben-Hadad what he had said. And, and Ben-Hadad says, okay, go back and tell him this, that tomorrow about this time, I'm going to come and I'm going to take his wives, I'm going to take his gold, I'm going to take his silver. But you tell him, that we're going to have access to all of his house, all of his closets, everything that he has, and whatever we see that we want, we're going to take it. Whatever we see that we want, we're just going to take it. Now, when Ahab heard that, and this is what makes me wonder about a king like this, he didn't have any problem in giving up the national security. He didn't have any problem giving up the gold of the nation, the silver of the nation. He didn't have any problem giving up the wives, and you could say of the nation because he was the king. He didn't have any problem giving that stuff up. It's like, no problem whatsoever. As long as his personal security was intact. As long as his personal security was intact, he didn't care what happened to the nation. There's something wrong with a leader who's willing to give up our nation to other nations and give, our, give us away as long as he's got what he wants and he's held intact. So a man of God comes up to him. And I like this because he's called a man of God. He's not given a name. So we can't say, do you remember when Elijah came and said this? Can you remember when Haggai, when Isaiah, when, you know, there's no prophet. He didn't have a name. He's just called the prophet of God. Why? Why is he only called? Why didn't he have a name? Because in this passage, it didn't matter what his name was. In this passage, he's speaking on behalf of God. 
It is irrelevant what his name was. God was doing the speaking. When God speaks, God adheres to what he says, regardless of what anybody else thinks or says in reply. You see, when, let me get this before I go any further. When God says something, it is so regardless of what the other person may reply or react to. I'm going to give you an example. Because I still got plenty of time to finish this story. Sunday night in Marietta, when it came time for ministry, I looked and there was a lady on the back row, never seen her before, but I could tell that she had been in a difficult place. You could tell by the way she, her, she presented herself. You could tell by the way she was dressed that she was uh, in need. And my heart went out to her, which is what we're supposed to, we're, we're supposed to have compassion. And I called her out into the aisle. I, I didn't know her, never seen her before. And the Holy Spirit said there's arthritis in her knees and her, in her feet. And I told her that. And she said, yes, that's correct. So we prayed for her. But when she was coming out, I noticed that she walked with a limp. Now, it's one thing for God just to do, do say, tell me, okay, that this is what it is. But if we turn around and let the lady go back, still limping, has God really healed her? See, this is what I mean. When God heals you, you heal. You is healed when God heals you. And when God heals you, whether it manifests at that moment or not is irrelevant. When God speaks the word and says you're healed, you're healed. Even though you still may have the sniffles. Even though you still might be walking with a, a limp temporarily. When God says you're healed, you're healed. If God tells me something about somebody and I know it's God speaking... I speak the word, and that word is so because God said it. Eddie didn't say it. God said it. Regardless of whether she receives it or not, God said it. Therefore, it is. She can get up and go limping back if she wants to. I'm not looking at the things in front of me. I'm looking at what God has said. It is not by sight that we walk. We walk by faith. So this is what, this is what we did. And I'm not even saying, this was God telling me to do this. I just thought, this is how we're going to do it. Because if there's people out there with any doubt, then this should do away with their doubt. See, I'm tired of people who need miracles not getting their miracles. And I'm tired of men of God saying that, well, they didn't have enough faith. Somebody's got to have the faith. Because when... It's been paid for. That is true. Jesus paid for it. If he paid for it, it belongs to us. But it equally, it takes faith to cash it in. I heard a man of God tell this lady, he said, look, tell me, if you don't have the faith, just let me know. I'll use my account. I like that answer. That's where I want to get. But we, you see, we can't be moved by what we see. So I had the lady come up. And sit on the floor on the platform, which was a little higher than this, and everybody, and not even in a chair. I just said, sit on the floor. So she sat on the floor, parallel to the congregation, and stuck her legs out, and you could see clearly that one's about two inches shorter than the other. Okay. To make sure that no one thinks that we're pulling a trick on them, or, you know, sitting there. Yeah, I used to think, and we saw a mirror. We saw, you know, you sit down and put your feet in my hands. I used to do that stuff. But I said, why should I have to do it? I'm not the healer anyway. 
What difference does it make if I'm touching them? Wouldn't it make more sense that God just touch them? So everybody could clearly see. They came around and looked. And they just leaned over. And I said, come forward. And her legs began to shake and her leg came out parallel even with the other ones. Now this is what I'm talking about. When God says it, it's so. When she got up and started walking down the aisle, she was still limping. And I said, why are you limping? She said, I don't know. I said, are your legs even? She looked at him again. She said, yeah. I said, then why are you limping? You, you know, you, you, people get into habits. And they do things out of habits. And sometimes our healing is there in front of us, but we still, out of a habit, continue to do, act, walk, say, think, as we did prior to that. When God has healed us. I heard a, a man of God say one time, he just got through delivering. He told the woman, he said, you're free. This was in Africa. He told the woman, he said, you're free. And he turned around and walked off. Well, a minute later, the woman's over there throwing up. He said, I don't know what she's doing. I said she was free and she's free. <laughs> what do you think she would do? Well, because, you know, they throw up a lot in Africa when you get delivered. So she's thinking, well, i got to go over here and throw up. No, you don't have to do anything. Don't have to. All right, back to the story. So the man of God came up and he said, this is what's going to take place. God's going to give you this vast army in your hand, into your hands tomorrow. And Ahab says, okay. And he tells him, now there's 32 kings that have joined forces with Ben-Hadad. It is an innumerable host against Israel. And they have... Israel musters 7,000 men and some leaders who are young men, captains. These young, you can read the story in 1 Kings 20. When, when he, when he, these, little, these guys are not seasoned veterans, these captains, the 230-something captains. They're not seasoned veterans. They're young men. They've not had the experience of war, but God delivers them into his hands. God takes this small group of people and he delivers them into his hands. Now, they had a great victory. And Ahab got away with his life only because he had a cavalry behind him and he had a horse to ride off in. And everybody else was just slaughtered. The man of God returns to the King Ahab and he says, don't get your hopes up here because he'll return next year. And when he returns next year, God will give them into your hands. So a long story short, when the spring of the year had come, the advisors of Ben-Hadad said this, and this is this everything that I've, I've said to it hinges to you personally about what I'm about to tell you right now. So get this part. Get this part right here. This is what the advisors told, told Ben-Hadad. He said, the people, their army, their little frail army, beat us because their God is a God of the mountains. They'd fought in the mountains. And he said, he, because he's a God of the mountains, he... He defeated us. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they had done their history. Maybe they realized that the father of their faith had gone up to Mount Moriah and offered his son as a living sacrifice on a mountain. Maybe he heard about Moses that went up the mountain that was quaking with fire. Maybe he just thought that, you know, this God dwells on the mountains. It's possible. And it, their advice to Benadad was, we will fight them in the plain. We will fight them in the valley. We will defeat them. And, it, and he... They instruct, his advisors instructed, replace the army, man for man, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, and we will defeat 
the time for war comes out. And the boast comes across from, from the Benadad that they're going to take the city again. And I love, ironically, I love what Ahab says to him. He says to him, basically the interpretation, that he said, don't speak as one who has removed his armor. And what he was meaning in that translation is don't be so boastful before you even put on your armor the boast of victory before you've even taken it off. You're, you're, you're speaking as though you've already removed your armor. You're boasting. The Bible says that when this, the army of Israel goes up into this battle, that they look like two little small flocks of goats in comparison to this massive army that is gathered in the valley, in the plain against it. What happened? It's an absolute slaughter. The army of Israel slays over a hundred thousand men that day. A hundred thousand. Seven thousand people slayed. One hundred thousand people. Why? You say, why? How, how does that happen? How does that work? See, here, this was really the mistake. And this is what's coming down personal to you. Here's the mistake. The whole interpretation of that passage and everything I had to say with, and why would I even go to the Old Testament when I'm talking about the glory of God, is because it has to do with the revelation. And here is the revelation of that passage. Where Benadad made a mistake and where Satan makes a mistake against you is this. He is the God of the mountain. You see, when the enemy has you in the valley, he thinks he's got you as low, as low as you can possibly go. When the enemy has you stripped of everything that you have ever possessed, everything that you ever held dear to you, when you're barely squeaking to get by monetarily, physically, or any other way, when he feels as though you're at the very end of your end, that's when he knows he has you, so he will fight you in the valley because he knows on the mountain the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is there. But where he messed up is this that God is not only the God of the mountain, He is the God of the valley as well. And God can rescue you out of the valley and He can pour His glory in you right now as easily as He can rescue you on top of the mountain. It's irrelevant where you are at this very moment. The glory of God is coming to you if you receive the revelation. The glory of God is coming to you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we praise you, we worship you, we give you glory. You are the King of glory. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are the King of the mountains. You are the King of the valley. You are the King over everything, and we worship you and we give you glory. I thank you, O oh God, that your glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I thank you, O oh God, that you have given us the very glory that you operated in, the very glory that clothes you. I thank you, God, that you have made us one with you so that in this end time, though things may be dark, though things may be black, though things may seem as though we're at the end of the end of the end, yet and still, this is the time, Isaiah 60 verse 1, where you said to us, arise and shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord will be seen upon you. And I give you praise for that. We press into this moment of time, expecting, believing with everything in us, the kingdom of God is advancing 
from this moment forward. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Give the Lord a hand. Hallelujah. 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 That's good stuff, ain't it? Praise God. That's good stuff.